Bronco Nagurski, you know, like the ultimate early NFL player, one year got paid with an IOU. And what's really amazing is he took it. His role as a pioneer in broadcasting, setting the table for guys like Michael Strahan that you see now, uh, Tom Jackson before him, without Irv doing what he did, I think it would have been a long time before somebody else got an opportunity. 13,000 people at a high school stadium with no bathrooms. No <laughs> bathrooms for 13,000 people? No bathrooms. Yeah, in the woods. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome into the lounge for Steelers Week. We bring in the biggest guests for Steelers Week. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we, we got... <laughs> Go ahead, give it to them. Yeah, yeah we, we searched high and far and wide to find the best possible guests for Steelers Week. And we got none other than the great one. Johnny Eyes. <laughs> <laughs> and Clifton Brown. And Clifton Brown. This it's is a double, double edition. Double edition. That's right. That's right. So, you know... Alex Collins, he might he might be severed off the, the list of potential guests for the lounge because he's left us high and dry now for two straight weeks. Yeah, Alex Collins basically is gonna be begging to come on the lounge now that he realizes we, you know, after he passed us by, we went out and got better guests. Hey, we went well, jo Johnny Eyes and Cliff Brown. Well, is there any connection here between the low you know, his low yards per carry and you his know, refusal to come on the lounge? I think that he needs to understand the benefit of the podcast bump. Completely agree. Yeah, I, completely I will agree. say, though, if I will let you all know, he has a better nose for the end zone than me. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. I wish that was the case because uh, fantasy. <laughs> yeah. All right. Um, so before we get into the interview, part of the reason we're bringing John on is because with John and Cliff, because both of them have new books, uh, which are really, really cool. Uh, tied into the NFL that I think any football fan would be interested to read. Uh, but before we start talking about the book, we have an audio question from Brent Lerner. So let's go ahead and play that audio question. Hey, Garrett and Ryan. Great win over the Broncos today. There was a lot to be encouraged about during the game. About four months ago, I moved to Sydney, Australia, when a really cool opportunity came up with uh, for the company I work for. And Garrett, you may not remember this, but I actually interviewed you for a project I did a few years back uh, when I was still in college. So I really look forward to the lounge every week as I live down under. The only annoying part about living so far away is that to watch the regular 1 p.m. Eastern Sunday afternoon Ravens game, that means I'm waking up at 2.45 a.m. Monday mornings for a 3 a.m. Sydney time kickoff. It's not ideal, but that's the sacrifice that great fans make. On that note, my question is this. What is the craziest or most inconvenient thing you've done to watch a Ravens game that you weren't attending? Again, love the show, guys, and looking forward to many more episodes to come. Thanks. So thanks to Brett. Good question from him. How about that? He interviewed me for a project a few years ago. Yeah? Of course I remember. I'm sure I gave him great stuff. Great <laughs> stuff. Uh, but what about you guys? Have you ever woken up at a crazy time to watch a Ravens game? Uh, I was in Australia for a Ravens game. Oh. Uh, it was, uh, my Baltimore Sundays, uh, 2000 Olympics in Sydney, and uh, yeah, it was a whipping. Uh, so that was a Super Bowl year, and it uh, wound up being a Super Bowl year, and they lost to the Bears. It was, it was raining. 
Did you it, have to cover it? No, no. You just watched it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Was it the Bears? You see, the Bears are the 40. You know what? It was a long time ago. But I remember this. It was raining, and there were only field goals. And the Ravens <laughs> lost. It was like 12 to 3. You can look it up. Okay. This is back when newspapers had money. So John was just gallivanting all over the world. Yeah. Australia, South Africa. Yeah, yeah, in the Paleozoic era. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, it's kind of a similar story, also in a Super Bowl year. Uh, 2012, I was out in San Francisco for my brother-in-law's wedding, uh, and so I couldn't, you know, I, was, I wasn't going to the game, obviously, and my brother-in-law, you know, he's like a hippy-dippy, you know, San Francisco guy, you know, these yeah. aren't people that subscribe to NFL Sunday Ticket, right? <laughs> so I wasn't going back to his place to watch the game, so I had to find a bar. That's always the solution, you know, yeah. if you don't have it at your house, you go to a bar. Yeah. And so I went there, found like some bar in San Francisco, and it was the the Ravens were playing in Houston, and the Texans whooped our butt forty three to thirteen. And of course, I found the only bar with about six Texans fans, <laughs> massive Texans fans that also happened to be at the same bar. So I'm sitting there, laptop on the bar. All these they're going wild. I'm like, this is miserable, just miserable. <laughs> well, hey, I give Brett. Props. If any Ravens fan wakes up at 3 o'clock in the morning on Mondays to watch Ravens games, that's commitment. So yeah. uh, well done to Brett. And for anyone that wants to send in audio questions, you can do so at the lounge at ravens.nfl.net. Thanks, Brett. Um, and so anybody else send those in. So let's go ahead and start talking uh, with you, John. The reason we brought John on is because you've got a new book. It's not officially out yet, right? You can pre-order it. Well, I've got it right in front of me. Well, this is this is the advanced copy. Advanced copy. No, the, the book, the official publication date is October 9th. Okay, right. so, you should probably uh, give the title of the book. Yeah, it's called The League. The League. The League. How yeah. Five Rivals Created the NFL and Launched a Sports Empire. So we could do the summary, John, but I think you're better equipped to kind of summarize what this book is okay. about. Uh, well, it is, <clears throat> it's a book of, of football history, really. It's, a, it's like an NFL creation story. What I did, the, and actually this publisher of Basic Books in New York, they came to me and said, uh, you know, would you be interested in doing this story about these early owners? They're all famous guys. They're all in the Hall of Fame. George Hallis. Burt Bell. Actually, they left it to me. You figure out the guys. <laughs> but, but tell us, tell us about the own. How did this league survive the early years when it started? And it was maybe the fifth or sixth most popular sport. And I mean, pro football was not popular. College football, boxing, baseball was number one. Horse racing, on and on. Pro football was nothing. And so. Uh, how did they keep it going when nobody cared, they were losing money, franchises came and went, and for 20 years, 30 years, you can't believe how long this went on. Wow. Uh, what years know, are we talking about here? Uh, the book is mostly set, uh, 1920s when it all starts, through the 20s, through the 30s, through the 40s, so through the Depression, through World War II, and uh, then there was a, a rival league in the late 40s after the war that was a huge thing. And so really three decades of just really struggle. Mm -hmm. wow. And you know, how do they get it done? So, so when you start to write the book, is you're at the outset of this, are you basically trying to figure out what was it that this group of owners did to allow the game to continue and then get to the point of where we are today, kind yep. of figure out the secret sauce? Secret sauce is exactly right. And of course, a lot because, and, and so much of it involves money, but the point <laughs> is there was no money. I mean, they, they, weren't, they weren't trying to get rich. They were just, I mean, that was laughable. There was no, you weren't, you didn't get into foot, pro football to say, I'm going to be a rich guy. I mean, right. I mean, they didn't have, there was no money in it. There was very little. You just didn't want to go bankrupt. 
you know, was really what it was. So they were just trying to get by, and they did believe. They believed in pro football, and that's what they had, and that's honestly the secret sauce. Back, back then, that was like the best investment you could have ever made, man. Buying an NFL franchise back then for, what, 100 bucks? Well, let me tell you. <laughs> let me tell you. I interviewed, among, in my research, I interviewed the owner of the Chicago Bears. Mm-hmm. Her name is Virginia McCaskey. Yeah. Okay. She is George Hallis's daughter. Okay. Okay. So George Hallis started the Chicago Bears in 1920. It was a couple thousand dollars, you know, or something like, <laughs> like that. And so now this is his direct descendant, still owns the Bears. Right. What are they worth? I haven't seen these oh, Forbes valuations. Billions three, of dollars. Three billion dollars or right. something like that. So yeah, I would say not a bad investment. <laughs> <laughs> Did you fly out there to her like yep. palatial estate to, to go interview her? I interviewed her in Hallis Hall. Uh-huh. Uh, you know where the it's their their Under Armour's performance center. Yeah. It's really nice out north of Chicago. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Kevin Byrne of the Ravens helped set me up and get me through the door in a couple places. Nice. And yeah, I mean, and that was great. I mean, she's 93, 94 years old, still sharp. And, you know, this, you know, little, sweet little woman, you know, she owns the Chicago Bears. <laughs> I mean, it's amazing. amazing. So anyway, I've told some people around the league, I said, I interviewed Virginia McCaskey. And they, they were like, wow, that's like talking to like George Washington's daughter. <laughs> <laughs> and it's kind of true. I mean, she was there for, she's seen it all. That's so awesome. she was a good tell, tell us a little bit about some of these, the main characters, you know, what were some of the more interesting takeaways that you got or learned about them? Well, uh, it's the original Rooney, Art Rooney, right. uh, the original Mara, Tim Mara, uh, started the New York Giants in 1925 for $500. Wow. And uh, he was a bookie. Right? <laughs> that, was his, that was his line of work. He was a legal bookie. Yeah. You, you could be a legal horse racing bookie back then. So he was that. Uh, uh, Burt Bell, who's kind of forgotten, he started the Philadelphia Eagles in 1933. He ultimately was commissioner. Uh, uh, before Pete Rozelle. And so he was a rich guy. He was the only one who was born very rich and blew all his money, I think, at the racetrack. (laughs) And so, and then, and then to start the Eagles, he like borrowed money from his wife, who was a showgirl. So (laughs) one after the other, these stories, these guys were unbelievable. Uh, You know, they were, they were living, they were gamblers. Art Rooney, who started the Steelers, he never really worked a day in his life. Huh. He made his money sort of just with his wits, and a lot of it was at the racetrack. He, he was a famous gambler, actually was a front-page famous gambler. And so he would make money legally, but he was really good at playing the horses. Wow. So these guys... Good eye for talent, man. They yeah. still do from wide receiver. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. So I talked to his son, uh, Art Jr. I mean, the, the Steeler people were great. They were, yeah. they, they, they were very into it. And uh, what's really amazing is that all these years that I'm writing about, the Steelers were terrible. Mm. They were horrible. They were one of the worst teams in the league. The Ravens wish the Steelers were that bad now. <laughs> right. That'd be great. Especially on Sunday. <laughs> so if you were to go, to go to one of these games in, you know, 1940, what's the setting? I mean, what is it like? How many people are there? What does it look like? Okay, if you're in New York, it's pretty good. It's a somewhat familiar. You're at the Polo Grounds, which is a famous mm-hmm. baseball uh, stadium. And the Giants were the first successful team. They were drawing crowds in the 30s and the 40s. There, there could be 50,000 people. They played the Redskins. After the Redskins moved to Washington, they started in Boston. 
that was a, the first great rivalry. Well, the Bears and the Packers too, but the, the, in New York they were really drawing crowds. Okay. Uh, so that was great. On the other hand, if you went to Green Bay and the Packers were playing them, they played in a high school stadium. Really? So uh, 13,000 people at a high school stadium with no bathrooms. Oh, no <laughs> bathrooms for 13,000 people? No bathrooms. In the woods. What? <laughs> <laughs> what? So, yeah. Yeah. I, just, I got a lot of follow-up <laughs> questions that I'm going to leave alone. Yeah. So, uh, so anyway, it, it, it depends. But there would be, you could have 50,000 in New York. You could have 13,000. Or you could, like, uh, the Cardinals were in Chicago then. They may play before 5,000. Mm-hmm. Or the Eagles. The Eagles and the Steelers were the really the bottom of the league. They, they would play before 3,000 people sometimes. Sure. Nobody coming to the games. Wow. They couldn't give them away. So what turned it? I mean, what, at what point does all of a sudden this become the biggest, you know, obviously there's a long process, but like was there a point where all of a sudden football became, pro football became the sport in the United States? Well, what happened was, and this is really the, te- the text of the book, slowly but surely they separated themselves from college football. They just, for years, the NFL just took whatever rules college football had. They said, we'll, we'll do that. <laughs> you know, because college football was more popular. Slowly but surely, they started to change. They uh, opened up the game with, the, there were a lot of stipulations about the forward pass. Uh, they opened it up and said, we're going to have much more passing. Uh, another thing that they did, I mean, they constantly tweaked the rules. A huge thing in history, really little known, is unlimited substitutions, mm-hmm. which basically created two pl- platoons. It basically created an offense and a defense and led to specialization. You know, the quarterbacks were defensive backs for many, many years because you couldn't come off the field. Wow. And so, yeah, so that just led to, you know, you could just be a quarterback. Right. And slowly but surely, so the talent level, you know, rose a lot and the game became more exciting. The game became better than college football. More passing, more excitement, more specialization. That was, the, that was the one component. The other component was television. Mm. You know, when television came along and suddenly, as the game was getting more exciting, suddenly people all over the country could see it. Right. And they couldn't before. And those two things really, just when pro football was really becoming, you know, much more interesting to watch than college football, it, it got broadcast across the country. So that really helped. So they constantly worked. Really, the game was the most important part of it. And then the sort of public publicity involved with the game. And the tinkering of the game uh, still continues yeah, to, right. to this day. Oh, well, one thing, <laughs> one thing, absolutely. I mean, what I learned in this book is the, 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 the arguments that are about rules now, there's a long history. I mean, it, it, right. it, it goes back to that, and they're constantly dealing with stuff like that. Uh, I came across a game where one year in the championship game, all right, Sammy Baugh throws a pass. He's playing for the Redskins. He's in his end zone. He throws a pass. It hits the goalposts are on the goal line. Right. Okay. Right. It hits the goalpost coming <laughs> out of the end zone. That's a safety. Okay. Oh, wow. A two point rule. Okay, two. And they lost by one or two. The Redskins did. So George Preston Marshall, who owns the Redskins, just like any owner today, immediately to the rules the next year. That one's outlawed. (laughs) And it it was. It was. It was outlawed. Stupid rules like that. So, and and this is why you know uh, Aaron Rodgers 
you know, has his ribs broken or yep. whatever by a defensive lineman falling on him, and now the next year you can't fall on the quarterback anymore. Yep. Yep. It's the same exact stuff. So do you think, so obviously at the time, I'm guessing people, th- you know, are all up in arms like, get this forward pass out of here. This is garbage. We hate this new rule. And now it's obviously such a huge part of the game. So when you hear the things that are happening like this year with c- criticizing all these rules protecting quarterbacks, do you think in 10, 15 years people are saying, I can't believe you used to be able to fall on the quarterback? Yeah. That's insane. <laughs> well, it, 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 what it does is put it in, for me, put it in context. It's like this, this stuff happens every year. It happens all right. the time. It's always been happening. And then the, it's really important because it's the game. It's really important in the long, and you know, and I think the NFL, very frankly, has some issues with, uh, you know, uh, constantly with. There's a lot of penalties in these games now, and you know, the the product you you really have to focus on it constantly. But that's not new. It's not new. They've been doing it forever, and so, but it just shows you how important it is. This is a little side note on on this conversation. Sorry to take away from the book here a little bit, but I I think that it's funny that like so last year we were all complaining a bunch of NFL. Fans are complaining because the best, some of the best quarterbacks were getting injured, mm-hmm. right? And we are all attributing like the lower television ratings in parts of that. The stars were yeah. gone, a lot of them, right? So then the NFL goes and changes the rules to try to protect the quarterbacks to keep them on the field, so that we all want to watch more. And now we're like, what the hell? Like you, you can't protect these guys; they're just another player. Counter- you know, blah, blah, blah. I, I get what you're saying, I, and I agree with you, right? But the counterpoint to that is not all of these guys were injured because of rules that are now being put into place. Aaron Rodgers, yes. The guy fell right. on him, and that was... <clears throat> what was this? It was a separate... I said broken ribs. I think it was Yeah, separate shoulder. shoulder. Yes, yeah. collarbone thing, yeah, something, something up in that area. Um, but, you know, like the Sean Watson, torn ACL. Right. That's Wentz, independent of ACL. that. Wentz, ACL. Look at this year. Jimmy Garoppolo running, ACL. So that yeah. isn't... I think, I think the... Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think the NFL is really at a crossroads, too, when it comes to player safety and rules. Because on one hand, you have uh, the media and, let's say, a more liberal audience uh, who says the game needs to be safer. Like, it's so dangerous. Mm. It's it's gladiators out there, right? We need to protect players. But on the other hand, you have a lot of people who I think are the core NFL fans who say the game is too soft. Like, we, they, they believe it's gotten too... Not dangerous. Like yeah, we, right. they watch it because Powder they want to see football. Exactly, and the and, players seem to be, and the players seem to be leaning that way too. They think that it's become too soft. So it's like you, the league is battling this image perception from the media and, and a lot of fans, while at the same time you got to get it right. It's really interesting to uh-huh, me. Uh-huh. You got to get it right too. I mean, I mean, that's what one way or the other. You got to figure out what's the right way to do it. You know, right. and just, it's there's a long, long history of that. Well, and the NFL is also battling lawsuits. Yeah, so that was another reason for player yeah, safety. Yeah, the, the, the player safety <laughs> yeah. thing is a larger issue. Yeah, yeah, that's a big one. Anyway, but is but but this is the the tinkering of the rules. I mean, it sounds to me like what you're saying is basically when you go back, these guys were just focused on improving the game itself. I mean, yes, not that they didn't want to make money. Don't get me wrong, but as I said, there was no money to be made. I mean, it was the, they were just happy to have people coming to the games. So you know, it was yeah. not. It was all you know. So yes, they did think, how are we gonna, how are we gonna do this? And very quickly, it, and actually, one of the key guys was George Preston Marshall, who started the. I mean, you know, he's a complicated figure in history. He was a huge, <laughs> let's be honest, a huge racist. Probably the biggest yeah. racist in the history of the NFL. Well, the Skins are the last team to integrate. To integrate. In the NFL. Right, there's been books written about him. I mean, he was rough. But he right. was very progressive when it came to 
opening up the game. And he came from the theater, he had a background in the theater, and he said, you have to have a show here. No, but this is boring, uh, is what he said. He said, you know, we got to open this thing up. So he had a lot to do with, with tweaking the rules That's and saying, let's make it better. And so he also started marching bands. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, there's, you know. Before they were a college thing? Or he professionally. Gotcha. gotcha, and, gotcha. And, yes. I mean, the NFL, they had nothing at halftime. Right, 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 right. So, you know, in the college, no, the college bands were already, he said, that. we okay. have to do this. Gotcha. So, would, would you say, uh, after, after researching this, are you surprised that the NFL survived? Um, well, yeah. I mean, there were a couple of periods in time where it was close. It was really close. Uh, the first years of the Depression, uh, after the stock market crash in 1929, and, you know, I mean, that was, I mean, we went through an economic thing here, you know, 10 years ago. It was bad. I mean, the ticket buyers, they didn't have any money. Uh-huh. There was a lot of people not coming to the games, and the teams had nothing. And George Hallis, one year, one thing, I couldn't believe this, what I found out, one year paid his players with IOUs. <laughs> no, it's like Dumb and Dumber. Yeah. He played Bronco Nagurski, you know, like the ultimate early NFL player. Bronco right. Nagurski, you know. One year got paid with an IOU. And what's really amazing is uh, he took it. Wow. He said, okay, all right. And so, yes, so they were on the edge at that point. And then the other period of time where I'm not sure they were going to make it through was during World War II. If you go back and look, uh, there were franchises merged that year. Uh, the Cardinals and the Steelers merged yeah. because they didn't have enough players and you know they were barely making it at that point. The Eagles and the Steelers merged one year. They were just flinging it against the wall. It's like, hey, let's hope something sticks <laughs> yeah. and you know we can still have a league here. Yeah. So it was close. So there are a couple times where I think it was pretty vulnerable. Wow, that's interesting. Well, the book is The League, How Five Rivals Created the NFL and Launched a Sports Empire. It's October 9th. October 9th, yes. You can pre-order it now on Amazon. Yes. And uh, we've got the advanced copy right here, so I'm going to go ahead and take a look at that before you get your greasy palms all over it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. I'm going to have to get that little autographed, inscribed version from John. I always look forward to that. Yeah. I still have yet to read his Packers book. (laughs) i got got to get around to the street. Come on, man. You've got to check that one off the list before you get this one. This is book number 10? 10. Wow. Yeah. I'll tell you what, man. Where's it rank? Uh, He's going to say first. Uh, <laughs> I would, no, we're not say first, but uh, uh, it, it's high. It, it, a lot went into this one. Yeah. A lot went into this one, so I'm pretty happy with it. That's great, John. Well, I can't wait to read it, and uh, definitely we encourage everybody out there to, to order a copy. So thank you very it. much. Thanks for having me. Always appreciate it. Thanks, John. All right, well, thanks to John, and now we bring in another great guest. You know, John... He's a leadoff hitter. He, he, he set the table for you, Cliff. Now you got to drive him home. Yes, sir. Press is on, baby. Press is on. Uh, we've got Clifton Brown here, who, uh, if you guys listened to the podcast a few weeks ago, he made his debut on the lounge as the judge that week. Now he's just, uh, he's just normal Cliff this week. I'm looking pretty good on my predictions there for Joe Flacco top of 4,000 yards. I believe you said under. But both Cliff and I yeah, said under. Yes, you did. This is yeah. Three games into the season, Minks ready to go ahead and cash uh, in those chips. Yeah. No. Hey, I'll double down right now. I'll double down. On We're my not bet. here to make predictions. We're here to talk about Cliff's <laughs> new book. All right, Cliff. So Cliff is the author of Bearing the Cross. Uh, it's the story of Irv Cross, who was the first uh, African American sports broadcaster. Uh, Cliff, what was? Tell us the inspiration behind this book. Well, I wanted to do a book. 
and was looking for a subject. So the publisher I work with asked me to send him five suggestions for a book. This is the one he liked the most. I didn't know Irv Cross at all before I did this book, but I watched him on the NFL Today show, which was an iconic, groundbreaking TV pregame show, which really all these pregame shows we watch now are really based on. And at that time, in the 80s, it was really a deviation to have, he was the first African-American sportscaster on a national TV stage. They also had a woman, Phyllis George, then a year after was she, the show Was started, she the first woman? Yes, she was, on, on a national, uh -huh. as a national analyst. And then they brought in Jimmy the Greek after the show started for the gambling element. So <laughs> it was really a risky decision by CBS to go this way, but it really worked. It became, you know, the number one TV pregame show. And Irv's role, I think, got kind of lost in that, you know, Brent Musburger has had a great career. Um, Irv was kind of the guy who was in, kind of overshadowed sometimes by both the Greek and Brent, but his role as a pioneer in broadcasting, setting the table for guys like Michael Strahan that you see now, uh, Tom Jackson before him, without Irv doing what he did, I think it would have been a long time before somebody else got an opportunity. So you mentioned that you didn't know Irv personally before writing the book. Mm -hmm. What's your process then where the publisher says, all right, we like this idea, and you got to say, hey, Irv, let's, I'd like to write this book. <laughs> yeah, uh, I got in touch with him, and we talked. And then we met in a hotel room in Philly. He was getting put into their ring of honor, the Eagles. And so he spent that whole weekend in Philly. I, I went up to Philly and met with him, and we just talked. And uh, I grew up in Philly, uh, so I remembered him, not as a player, but obviously watching him on TV. And we just hit it off. Um, the, I think the key is he wanted to do a book, but he had not done one. And he's 79 years old now, so he's like, I need to do this. Uh, so he had a desire to do a book. When we met, he felt comfortable having me tell his, tell his story. It's in his voice, but you know, I did the writing. So we just clicked and one thing led to another. And, since I already had the agreement from the publisher that if he wanted to do the book, it would happen. And once I convinced Irv to do it with me, then we were off to the races. So how many hours of talking would you say goes into a book? Uh, like how many hours spent with Irv? Oh, God. It's countless, Ryan. I mean, a lot of it was done over the phone. I went out to Minnesota where he lives a few times to visit him, and we did it face-to-face. -face. But it's, it's an arduous process now. I only had eight months to do this book, which made it more pressure-packed. <laughs> I would have loved to have more time. And fortunately, Irv and I, you know, got along well. And, you know, I, I don't know if you guys are familiar with the book Tuesdays with Maury that a guy I used to work with, Mitch Album, wrote mm -hmm. where he would meet with the subject every Tuesday. Well, we had Tuesdays with Irv. Uh, <laughs> I would talk to him on the phone for as long as it took. And I would always give him a subject that I was going to talk about before we start. Okay, we're going to talk about your childhood. We're going to talk about your rookie season. We're going to talk about your first NFL Today season. And so we tried to keep it condensed into whatever that subject right, was. So you weren't just flying all right. over the place. But at some point, you have all this information, and you have to start writing. It's a much different process than writing an article. I mean, if you're doing an in-depth feature or profile on somebody, the information doesn't get so overwhelming that, okay, where do you begin? At some point, I almost had to stop talking to Irv and start writing. Because uh -huh. I had all these interviews, 
and no pages in the book. So <laughs> it was a learning process for me too. Um, one that, yeah, I'll never forget. So what's something about Irv Cross that you learned over the process of talking with him and uh, that I think people would be surprised to know? So many things, Garrett, which, which I guess was one reason why they liked the idea of a book. I didn't know he was one of 15 kids. He's wow. the eighth of 15 kids. Uh, I didn't know that his mother died when he was nine years old. I didn't know that how poor his family was. I didn't know that his father was an alcoholic, actually used to abuse his mother. Um, there were so many things that Irv overcame just to get to college. He was the first person in his family to even go to college. And he wanted to play football he used football as a vehicle to go to college. Mm -hmm. uh, it wasn't until he got to Northwestern, I didn't know he had played with for Araparsegian, the great Notre Dame coach who was at Northwestern first. That was his college coach. And he had a, Irv had a heck of a career at Northwestern, and, but he was still a seventh-round draft pick of the Eagles. Didn't think he was going to make the team. He told them when he showed up for training camp, if you guys are going to cut me, do it quickly so I can go back to Northwestern and go to grad school. <laughs> he just wanted to be a coach or a teacher, but he made the team and ended up playing nine years in the NFL and then went into broadcasting, actually when he was still a player. So all those type things, I had no idea. What was it about him that you think made him the guy that got that first shot You know that from a broadcasting standpoint? Yeah, another good question, because he wasn't a star player. I mean, he made the Pro Bowl a couple of times, but you know, you figure like someone from his area like Jim Brown or right. Dale Sayers would have been more right. built. But Irv had TV experience. When he started playing for the Eagles, the Eagles, he joined the Eagles a year after they won the 1960 NFL championship. So the Eagles were hugely popular in Philly, much like they are now. <laughs> and all the star players were overbooked for like speaking engagements. So <laughs> Irv went to them and said, hey, if there's any speaking engagements you guys want me to do, I'll do them for free. So he started doing speaking engagements around town. One day, this guy who works for TV stations saw Irv, said, you've got a great voice. You know, did you ever think about going into TV or radio? Next thing you know, he's doing the radio updates for the station, you know, the sports broadcast, and he got on TV. So he had TV experience. And when CBS decided to do this NFL Today show, they definitely wanted a woman. They definitely wanted an African-American. And one of the producers in New York had seen Irv in Philly and said, hey, I think Irv is a guy you should talk to. He went, you know, killed the audition and got the job. And another funny part about that is after he gets the job for the NFL today, they take him out to shop for clothes. And this was during the time when Superfly and Shaft, those were <laughs> like popular, you know, movies. Yeah. So they take Irv clothes shop and then they're buying him these gold chains and these, <laughs> you know, uh, big collars and Irv never dressed like that. So he tells this woman, he's from CBS, hey, I'm not wearing this stuff on TV. <laughs> this isn't me. Right. Like, you know, you need to get Sammy Davis Jr. or somebody else. <laughs> so he believes that if they hadn't already started doing promos with him on the show and sending pictures out that they would have gotten somebody else. Wow, because, went, because they wanted right, that look so much. They wanted that image. But when he went and told them that he wasn't going to do it, they said, all right, wear whatever you want. And then, of course, when he got on, he was so good, then it never became an issue. That's awesome. Why, why was it, you know, it really struck me that you said CBS knew that they wanted an African-American sports broadcaster. Why did they feel, like, how had the times changed then to, 
to prompt them to know that that's what they wanted? You know, that's a good question. I just think they felt they wanted to be different. Huh. And they wanted, and that maybe the country was ready for it. They just wanted to try something new. That's awesome. There was going to be a departure from any show that had ever been done. So right. I guess they always had the fallback position. And if it didn't work, they still had the contract to do NFL games with CBS. They would have just gone to a different format. Right. But it was very important that both uh, Irv and Phyllis were good in their roles because they knew that they were in that cast to for a reason, not just because of what they brought to the table. So it worked, even though they had a lot of problems behind the scenes with, you know, Phyllis George and, and Jimmy DeGree couldn't stand each other. You know, Brent and uh, DeGree got in a fist fight in a restaurant <laughs> after one of the shows. Irv was the one guy that everybody seemed to like. He was like the glue. So when, when this person wasn't talking to that person or this person didn't want to work with this person, he could kind of broker them. They were like a dysfunctional family that worked. Yeah, that's funny. Well, go ahead, Ryan. Oh, well, I, I was going to ask you, was, were you also interested in reporting about this, obviously because you're African-American, mm -hmm. and, and I'm curious as to whether early in your career, if it was difficult to break into the sports media industry as well? Uh, good questions. Yes, I definitely felt you know, that our Irv story was important and needed to be told as an African-American man that this is a guy who was important in the sports television business. Yeah. And the fact that his story wasn't well known, I thought was important. And he felt the same way. So we're both glad that, you know, while he's still alive, even makes it even more important that he got to see this book come out. Right. As for me, when I broke into the business, it was before ESPN. It was TV and journalism were very separate. <laughs> so you almost had to pick, all right, do I want to be a TV guy or do I want to be a writer? And I kind of chose writing because it was less subjective. And I, that, you know, being black, I'm like, well, if you can write, people have a harder time ignoring you or thinking of reasons why they don't want to hire you. Right. And definitely when I was in starting a business, once you became somebody who they thought was a pretty good writer and you want to grow your career, you were always pushed to cover the NBA. Like, we used to jokingly black right? we would call the NBA the ghetto beat. Oh <laughs> like, my God. It's like, once you start moving up the paper, like, oh, they're gonna put you on the ghetto beat, you know what's coming. <laughs> and you'd end up covering the NBA team. Baseball was much harder to get a beat job, mm. football, any other sport you wanna name. Right. So, one of the reasons why I ended up covering golf for a time when I was in New York with the New York Times because I asked, I went to my boss and said, look, I want to do something different than cover the NBA because I don't want to be pigeonholed into being a guy who can only cover the NBA. Mm -hmm. And as it turned out, our golf writer left and then my boss approached me and said, do you want to write golf? But I had never thought about covering <laughs> golf until he asked me, was I interested in doing it? Right. And that's how I ended up doing it. I said, yes. And then, you know, he decided to give me a shot. And that's how that happened because I didn't want that, want that stereotype to be, you know, on my resume. Interesting. When you started in your career, one of my uh, kind of mentors when I was growing up was a guy, uh, Justice Hill, who I think you know, yeah, who's I a do. black sports writer. And, but he, was, he had said early in his career, basically when you get in the press box, he was, there was kind of a bond with other African-American sports writers because there weren't many in the press box. Was that something that you felt when you first started out? Absolutely. My first job was in Florida, Boca Raton, Boca Raton News, and we covered Dolphins home games. 
And we only had a two and a half person staff. We had the sports editor, me, and then a woman who wrote part time for us. So when my boss didn't go to the Dolphin game, I would get to go. And yeah, the first time I walked into the press box at the Orange Bowl for a Dolphins game, I mean, yeah, I was stunned. I'm like, I don't see anybody else <laughs> black here. Yeah. You know, I don't see anybody. So. As more and more blacks started getting into business, yes, when we saw each other, you know, we would like, hey, you know, how are you? We want to introduce, we exchange information. You know, I still go to the National Association of Black Journalists Convention most years, any year I can, partly because I see people who I kind of grew up with in the business. We can mentor younger people coming up in the business because still, even now, I mean, you know, when a hockey beat comes open, I think it's just natural for a lot of, you know, sports editors, executive editors, they don't think of giving a black person a shot unless somebody brings that person to their attention. So, right. yeah, even though things have gotten a lot better, it's still, you know, like a lot of things where things go on, hiring practices that, you know, you kind of like wonder, did, did everybody get a, a fair shot just to, you know, to have this opportunity? Right. So it was Irv, like when you give him the book, did he have a ton of edits? Because it's, it's hard to tell somebody else's story. You know, like if somebody were to write my story, you know, I mean, heck, I edit Cliff all the time. And he's probably like, what the heck are you doing? <laughs> you know, you're, you're way too overbearing. Now, if somebody wrote my story, I'd probably be like, I got to change this, this, this. How was Irv about it? Irv was very good about it. Um, yeah, and I think we built a good chemistry. We built the trust because I told him early on, Look, I'm, I'm going to try and make you talk about things that are uncomfortable for you. Right. Talking about your, your favorite memories is going to be easy. Right. When you start talking about, you know, your father, you know, beating your mother, your, your mother's death, you know, some of the poverty you went through, it's going to be hard for you. And I'm going to have to take you places you don't want to go. But if you go there, the book will be better. Right. And so, yeah, definitely, you know, the part about, you know, his father, his father worked we come on Friday nights from the factory, and that's when he knew it was going to be a bad night because his father had just gotten paid. He would set aside a certain amount of money on the kitchen table for the family, and then he would go straight to the bar. Wow. And when he came back from the bar, that's when he'd be drunk and he'd get into it with Irv's mom. So I knew that was going to be hard. Irv broke down and cried, you know, like talking about it. Yeah. And But he did it, and then when I sent him that chapter and it was cool, then I'm like, okay, from here on, I'm like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. the rest of it shouldn't be as hard. Right, I got the tough stuff out of the way. Right. That's awesome. Well, the book is Bearing the Cross, My Inspiring Journey from Poverty to the NFL and Sports Television. Again, it's about Irv Cross. It's available now. It came out in March, uh, so it's out there now. So go ahead and check it out. I'm sure Amazon, right? Amazon and Thrift Books are the two places easier to find. If you Google up Irv Cross, Bearing the Cross, all the information will come up. And yeah, I'm really humbled. You know, thanks for having me on talk about this, but... It's gotten a nice review, Philadelphia Inquirer, Chicago Tribune. Uh, Mike Wilbon mentioned it on Pardon the Interruption. I've nice. been on Richard Dice podcast talking about it because he loved Irv. So, yeah, it's gotten a lot of good feedback. And, yeah, it's not just a sports book. Obviously, the kind of life he's lived, you know, it touches on a lot of subjects that I think people will be interested in if they take the time to read it. Well, now it's at the big time. It's on the lounge. Right. Yeah, well, part of the interruption Richard, was a nice warm-up act. Yeah. Yeah. Richard Deitch, <laughs> nice warm-up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, this is a pinnacle, yeah. yeah. <laughs> right, right. So thank you, Cliff, and make sure everybody out there, get, go ahead and order yourself a copy. Yeah. Right.
So uh, that's it for us uh, this week. Uh, big game coming up against the Steelers. Yeah. Uh, big game. Big game. Cliff's going to be there uh, to break it down, and uh, we're all very excited about that. So after the big, big win mm-hmm. against the Steelers mm-hmm. on Sunday Night Football, we'll be back with a, another guest. It's going to be tough to live up to Cliff and John Eisenberg, <laughs> but we'll do our best. Thanks, guys. See you next week. <laughs>